And uh, I, do, I do urge you always uh, never to take for granted, especially in the day in which we live, that God's people can freely gather to worship and adore him. <clears throat> you will watch the incendiary news media uh, almost daily now running some article or another against those hateful Christian people. Uh, and uh, it's quite astounding that uh, our our governor, who is simply holding to some of the things that uh, people from both parties used to hold some decades ago, is now being viewed as an extremist. Uh, that's how far we've fallen, and we're falling much further, much quicker. So, brethren, we should pray. We should live holy lives. We should be the salt and light that our Christ has commanded us to be. <clears throat> this is a day to magnify the Lord, not a day to hide your head. Stand up and be counted for Christ Jesus. <clears throat> We're going to be back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 this morning. I'll just be reading uh, one verse in Titus and two verses in 1 Timothy. I've <clears throat> got about a six-hour message that I've whittled down to about two. So having taken two-thirds out, you should be delighted when I get ended. <clears throat> We're going into the waters of controversy. I started to do that last week, but did not finish. So I hope to take up today with a brief review of what we covered last week so that we can see and uh, understand the context in which this controversy arises. For those of you visiting, I do not delight to uh, do sermons where we have to untangle uh, particular uh, controversies, theological controversies, though I have, uh, uh, I certainly have a heart to do that when I believe it's necessary, and I believe that is necessary as we go through this. There will probably be more teaching than preaching this morning, uh, though uh, I just will not be able to help from falling into preaching at various moments. I pray that your hearts will be with me, that your minds will be tuned in, that the fact that we have to go through some detail will not let your mind drift. One of the reasons for doing this is for us to learn how to think through the fact that God's people don't agree on everything. And when we hit those moments where it's quite clear and some of us will have friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord that will take a different view from us this morning. Uh, it's important for you to be, here's, here's this word that Christians are not really great at today, but I want everybody in here to get great at, and that's thinking. If we are going to honor the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we're not here just to react and have some feel-good feelings. We're here to think according to the word of God. So uh, I will push myself through this to make sure that we get it done this morning. That may take a little more than usual, but I hope uh, 
not to, as a pastor friend of mine says, I hope not to wear you out. That's the Antichrist's work. So <clears throat> if you're unfamiliar with that, he is the one that wears out the saints in the word of God. <clears throat> so if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Titus chapter 1, verse 6. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. And then we will turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. Titus chapter 1, verse 6. Speaking of elders, Titus is to appoint elders in every city on Crete. And Paul's instruction to him by the power of the Holy Spirit is, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Now, First Timothy 3. <clears throat> First Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. Speaking of the qualifications of a bishop, of an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Amen. Amen. May the Lord, add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, please remain standing for our pastoral prayer this morning. Let me say, though, to especially to our visitors, if you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to remain standing, please feel free to sit. <clears throat> and now, brethren, let's unite our hearts before the throne of grace. <clears throat> My blessed Father in heaven, how great thou art. We magnify thee for thy mercies are new every morning. In this day we have already tasted of the sweetness of thy kindness to us. We thank thee for the blessing of gathering thy church. We thank thee that the foundation of uh, the, the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone is here and in every congregation that is truly thine across the face of this earth. We thank thee that thou, by thy glorious regenerating power, hath made us living stones pressed together and holding the head, Jesus Christ. O oh Christ Jesus, O oh head of this church, head of every true church, we pray that thou wouldst draw near to us today. Draw near. May the mighty, refreshing, powerful spirit flow through our hearts, open our minds, help us to hear thee and to understand thee and to walk with thee. O oh God, 
how we praise thee for the mercies that thou dost shower down upon us. Shower us with thy blessings. Shower us with thy, thy presence. Shower us, O righteous Father, with the glorious, amazing grace that has saved us and keeps us. O may thy children delight in Christ today. Father, as we go into the waters of controversy, as we struggle with thoughts that may be foreign to us or may be difficult, I pray that thou wouldst help this poor, weak vessel to speak plainly. And I pray that thy people will hear by thy Spirit what the Spirit is saying to this church. Now, O God, we ask for thy mercies upon the lost today, even though much in this sermon would be foreign to them. We pray, O God, that the presence of Christ and his blessed work, even his blessed name, as we work through this passage, will open their hearts, bring them to see their need of the Savior. And now, O God, help us. I plead in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The pastor's work in a congregation of Jesus Christ is an extraordinary supernatural work. The eternal Son of God knows and loves the man before the foundation of the world. He chooses the man to everlasting life. He regenerates him and brings him into union with himself by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. The sovereign Lord does this in his sovereign time, in his sovereign way, in his sovereign purpose. He breaks, equips, trains, and disciplines the man. And as the head of the church, Christ then helps one of his congregations to recognize his work in the man. You hear that? If you're drifting already, you don't want to miss that. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He orders his church. His order is here in the scripture. He saves a man and then he helps one of his churches recognize his work in the man. No church makes a pastor. They recognize a man that Christ has made a pastor. That's two very different things. John Newton said, quote, that none but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. Say that again. That none but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. 
That means you have a responsibility to know what that man looks like. You have the responsibility of soaking up, believing what the Word of God about the qualifications of an elder. You are going to be voting the man in. You will vote an imposter or a weak man or someone that Christ has done a work in to be an elder in this congregation. You have a major responsibility in this. You need to hear Jesus. Only he makes pastors. Newton goes on. If a young man has capacity, culture and application may make him a scholar, a philosopher, or an orator. But a true minister must have certain principles, motives, feelings, and aims which no industry or endeavors of men can either acquire or communicate. They must be given from above or they cannot be received. Close quote. I say, amen, and I hope you do too. But if that sounds foreign to you, if that sounds unusual, you have not been taught what God requires you and me to understand about who should be in a pulpit and who should not. One of the weaknesses of the churches in this country is they wouldn't know a God-chosen pastor a god made pastor if they sat under him for a decade or if he sat in the pews for a decade it isn't just a man who can give a sermon and very often that's all that a church settles for So with that in mind, we continue to examine the pastor's qualifications that Christ demands. Let me say that again. With that in mind, we continue to examine the pastor's qualifications that Christ demands and gives from above. Our message is entitled, Ruling Well, His Own House, Part 2. And may our Heavenly Father shed abroad his heavenly love in our hearts and enlighten our eyes, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. And may Christ, the head of the church, send his spirit to help us hear, believe, and apply his word for the everlasting glory of God and for the good of his people. Our first major thought this morning is a pastor, after God's heart, must rule his own house well. That is the theme of Titus 1.6 and 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Now, last time, we began to consider Christ's requirement of ruling well in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, those two verses. In verses 4 and 5 of this portion of Paul's letter, 
Christ's qualification for an elder is clear. A bishop must be, no other possibility, this is necessary, there's not any other way, he must be one that ruleth well his own house. As a father is Christ's representative to his family, so an elder is Christ's representative to his congregation. Once again, I will repeat. As a father is, not should be, not ought to be, every father is Christ's representative to his family. And he's either a good one or a bad one. So an elder is Christ's representative to his congregation. Therefore, we considered last time, number one, the meaning of ruling well. The model for this, of course, is Jesus Christ, who is faithful over his own house, whose house are we? The Holy Spirit announced through Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And one of Christ's beautiful, lovely titles is the Everlasting Father. So as a father, the man is the head, the leader, of his family. He cares for and applies himself to that family to provide, to protect it. His rule must not be a domineering, tyrannical, overbearing government. Nevertheless, He must govern himself, number one. Husbands, fathers, do you hear this? Before you uh, dive off the board into the deep end of the pool of your leading your family. And I see this error in family reform all the time. Fellas go, yeah, man, I'm the head. I'm the head. All right. And everybody has to jump up and look like him and everything he thinks. That's not what's being said here. It's not reality. It can be dictatorship where you have cookie-cut children. That is not the idea here at all. He must govern himself first by the word of God or he's not governing by the right measure. So he must govern himself, his wife, and his children in a spirit-wrought Christ-likeness with firmness Gentleness, not either or. Firmness, gentleness, consistency, and care. Consistency is the big tough one. 
He must do this well. And the word well there in the Greek means in the right way. Well, what's the right way? The word of God. It's according to the word of God, brethren. I appeal to every husband and father here. I don't care how long you've been in family reform. We constantly need to revisit the very things that God requires of us. We can get ourselves in... (laughs) I hate to say it this way. I like cruise control. And I just like to put it in right here on the speed limit and just go. I don't want to have to think about all of it. Just want to go. Can't do that. You have to be aware. You have to know what you're doing. You have to think about it. And when you don't know what you're doing, what you need to do is get on your face before God and say, teach me, guide me, help me to guide the family you gave me according to the word of God. It is to be again. A rule according to God's rule. God's word. Those words of life. Those words of wisdom. Those words of love and grace and mercy. His words. The revelation from God himself. And it's not to be according to human whims. Now it's true. All parents, mom and dad alike... There are times when there's not a specific verse verse in Scripture that speaks directly to a particular problem. But if we seek the Lord, if we seek wise counsel, if we go to the Word of God, we'll eventually find a principle that'll help us. We do believe in the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So then, we considered, number two, the focus of ruling well. having his children in subjection with all gravity. A father must show his leadership skills by instructing his children to submit to his government. That's not easy, right? It's one thing when you have one child. It's another when when they start multiplying. It's it's a, a lot like herding cats sometimes. Used to have a dog who was bred to herd cattle. And one of the funniest moments of any day was trying to watch him herd our 13 cats. He he never got more than two or three to stay in the same place while he ran circles around them and tried to get the other cats. that's, That's a whole lot the way children are sometimes. Difficult to round them up and walk in the way that they should. It takes leadership. It takes leadership. And it doesn't matter whether it's one child or 12. It's very sobering and challenging work. And a man who's going to serve Christ as a shepherd has to have some skill in this. Or whatever blessing he may be to the congregation, it is not as an elder. I repeat, he must show leadership skills 
Uh, None of them are going to be perfect. No man's going to be perfect in these things. But there are men who have grown in those skills because they've given their life to it. He must teach them. He must instruct those little minds. And there are different stages always. Things are changing all of the time with our, with our children. And he must teach them to submit to his government. He must love them. And in their minds, that must never be a question. If you don't have their hearts because of your love for them, they will question all of your attempted decisions and commands to them. He must love them, he must work them, and he must discipline them. You don't need an encyclopedia of how to bring up your children if you understand those things. Now, I'm not against learning every possible thing you can about being a father from those who actually know it. But make sure the people writing the book have grown children. That's been one of the big embarrassments in family reform is those who wrote all kind of books and people bought them up everywhere. And then when their children got to a particular age, they bailed. Don't spend your money on somebody you have no idea what they're really going to teach you. So, a father must deal with his children's hearts along the way. Listen, dads, this is one of the most important things you've got to get. You must deal with their hearts along the way, not simply their behavior. Many people just want... Stop that. And you've got to say that sometimes. But very often the only matter in their thinking is your actions are aggravating me or embarrassing me. And that's not the point. Why are those children doing that? Because they need a savior You need to deal with their hearts, not just their behavior. Behavior is a big deal. And there are times when you'll settle (laughs) for behaving if you've not been able to get the moral point across. But a father who understands these things realizes, why did they lie? Why did they cheat? Why did they talk back? Why did they do this and that and the other? Because they have hearts that are rebellious against God. And they needed to be in love, pointed to Christ regularly. And that means you've got to have control of yourself in order to make it more effective. This isn't just a do as I say, but not as I do life. Especially for a man who's going to be an elder. Is the man, is it obvious that he's only concerned about the children's behavior and how it makes him look? Or is he desperately concerned about the immortal souls of those children that God has given him? 
And last, we considered the reason for ruling well. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Is it not obvious, my brethren, a man who cannot lead his family according to God's word cannot lead God's family. A man who cannot lead his family according to God's word cannot lead God's family. And I'll repeat this fairly regularly. No one does it perfectly. But there are those who are gifted and do it. And very often it's not just a a gift that no other father has. If you're born of God's spirit, you are in union with the father. Listen to him. Obey him and then govern your children. Your soul must be laid before God. Your heart must be laid before God. Be careful of the formulaic stuff that's out there. You know, if you put all your children in a dark blue blazer and an American flag tie and everybody marches to your tune until they're 17 or 18. And if you just do this, that, and the other, if you do these formulas, your children can turn out okay. You need to run from that junk. And I mean run from it. What every child needs is a man under the cross. What every child needs is a man under the cross of Christ. That's a good place to learn how to deal with your children. As the Lord deals with you, deal with them. So, does this man bring up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Can you see that? It's not always easy to see if the candidate is outside of a congregation. It takes more time getting to know him. Does he... Believe and does he apply? Train up a child in the way he should go. Their hearts don't come into the world ready for that journey. And you will have to guide them. Very often when they're in an unregenerate state, that's not easy. Does the man believe and apply that? Does he realize that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it from him, far from him? You're living in a culture that absolutely despises that notion. And you see what it's given us. Chaos and perversion. It's astounding. It's truly astounding. 
Does he believe? Listen carefully. Flags, neon lights going off here. Does he believe in and consistently practice family worship? Hear ye children, says wise Solomon, hear ye children the instruction of a father. Hear my instructions. It's not just talking about how to cut the yard. And attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Why should that be in the life of an elder? Because it should be in the life of every father in his congregation. Every father has spiritual responsibilities to the never-dying souls of those that are under his roof. Well, I can't save them. I understand that. I can't. Pastors can't. But you need to point them to who does save. Charles Bridges earnestly exhorts fathers, quote, Begin the training of the child as Hannah did with his dedication to God. This done, train him as God's child. Entrusted to your care, asking guidance from day to day. How shall we order the child and how shall we do unto him? Oh, that's all the pastor's business. That's a Sunday school teacher. No, it is your responsibility before God. They might help, but your children are not their children. You are going to answer for the immortal souls that God has put in your house. You have a direct responsibility to point them to Christ, to live the word of God before them. A man that will not do that hates his children, no matter how much he may fondle and, and fawn over them. That soul is going to live forever in hell or in heaven. And God has put it right there in your house. Bridges goes on. Pray for him. Teach him to pray. Instruct him from a child in the Holy Scriptures as the sole rule of faith and directory of conduct. Close quote. Every child in a godly home should know that the will in that house is God's will. Because the word of God is set before them morning and night. You have a responsibility. Stop looking to the so-called experts to do your work. Get on your face before the living God and say, you gave me the soul. Show me how to point this boy, this girl to Christ Jesus. 
Help me to live as a faithful Christian before them so that they won't believe that this is all a lie once they begin to figure things out. Oh, brethren, as we consider elder candidates, does the man love his children, work his children, and discipline his children? That's a simple, simple one, two, three. I don't guarantee anything with that one, two, three, except you glorify God. Number two, Christ's requirement in Titus 1.6. This is where we get into the waters of controversy. Paul's letter to Titus adds a very controversial detail to the qualifications for elders. So... Let's have one mind and one heart here if the Lord will permit it. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, Having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. May Christ Jesus open our eyes. May he give us understanding here. And may we obey James's command wherefore my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God as with the phrase the husband of one wife This qualification on first hearing sounds simple. Yet many of God's people and many Bible translators and commentators disagree strongly on how the Greek should be translated. Now, those are some of the most difficult things to work through in the Christian faith. Because at least among those who are regenerate men and women... They're looking at the scriptures, but they're coming to a different conclusion. And this is where we have to humble ourselves before God and say, this is how I understand it after having looked at it in great detail. Not just, oh, well, famous Pastor X says this, so that's my position. You have a responsibility to think and look and ask questions. So, the authorized version translates from the Greek to the English, having faithful children. But others are not convinced. The same Greek word can be translated believing or faithful. Those are huge differences. It is used both ways in Scripture, even in the pastoral epistles. So we will consider the two main translations in the controversy. You need to roll up your mental sleeves here. The first translation is believing children. Believing. He must have believing children. Uh, Many, in fact, I would say probably the majority, 
But many modern translations of God's word render the Greek in the following ways. Listen carefully. Children that believe. Children who believe. Having believing children. With believing children. Whose children believe. Whose children are of the faith. Whose children are believers. Children who are believers. His children are believers. And even a few. His children must be believers. The Greek doesn't say that. But that is the implication. And that is the way some translate it. It can be translated. I think more accurately. Having children who believe or having believing children okay so these translations and the doctrine they present raise some very thorny questions sounds simple man has to have believing children okay think with me number one if a qualification for eldership is having believing children, then it seems, operative word, seems, then it seems that every time his wife bears another child, he must step down until the child is converted. It doesn't say having children that are eventually converted. It doesn't say that. This translation is having believing children children so let me begin let me begin with a little terminology some of us well all of us should be but some of us and maybe even our visitors may not be familiar with the terms pedobaptist or credobaptist so i'm going to be even changing the terminology in the hope of making it even a little simpler I will use the term infant sprinkling for pedobaptist and believer immersion for credobaptist. Are you with me? All right. So, requiring believing children is generally not a problem for some of our infant sprinkling friends because of their view of God's covenants. Or their view of God's grace, some hold the doctrine of presumptive regeneration. And here's what that means. It means they presume, based on their theological system, that their children are regenerate unless they prove otherwise later in life. I've had it said to me exactly that way. You Baptists, you have a problem. You Baptists believe that your children are not converted until there's some evidence. We believe that our children are converted until they give evidence that they're not. So our system certainly works into the interpretation of these passages. So stay with me. There's one more. They may consider as well that their children are God's elect for the same reason that they believe that they're regenerate. If they are God's elect, 
they, uh, they believe that they are God's elect unless they prove otherwise later in their life that they're not. Right? So the assumption is regenerate believing children. And there are different colors of all of this. And there, there's, there are different shades of all of it. I'm trying to keep it uh, from getting unwieldy. For some of you, we may already be in that space. But let me say, having believing children does present a problem for those who believe that their children must give evidence that they're converted. Because that would mean... There's a limit on who could be a pastor or who not. Do you have children that have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, regardless of all of the gifts you may have, you can't be an elder. I'll go a little further in the hopes that the picture will start clearing up just a bit. So in Baptist churches or in other believer immersionist congregations, <coughs> This can be a very serious issue. And all of the positions have definite struggles. All of them. So eventually we have to come to say, in the weight of evidence, we lean this way. Or in the weight of the evidence, we go the other way. So I trust you realize that a system of theology is usually behind a certain view of controversial passages. You're going, if, if, if you believe that men have free will, no matter what, <clears throat> you're going to have some really tough passages to work through, but you will look at those tough passages according to the system that you're in. And it's the same thing on the other side. If you believe that man's will is chained by his radical depravity, there are going to be some verses you have to wrestle with. And your system generally points you in that direction. Here, it's, there are many theological issues that come into this picture. But generally speaking, in infant sprinkling congregations, there is a less, a less of a problem with this, having believing children. With Baptists, right out of the chute. It's a problem. Are you feeling that just a little bit? Let me press on here. But, you know, you have to ask a question, and I'm not trying to be silly, and I'm certainly not trying to be condescending. Must a man in a Baptist congregation step down with every new baby until that baby's converted? Because that's a baby that's not believing, or at least there's no evidence yet. Most people never sit down and think through the things people just bicker about. Very often, the bickering is very theologically important. So, you know, what would be the age limit in such a view? You've had a new baby. You've got four years for that child to show that he's a believer. <laughs> you can't do that. How, how do you even deal with that? But if you have a view that doesn't have a problem with it, then it's, you don't have a problem with it. Your children are believers till they prove otherwise. What you believe 
matters. Every day, what you believe matters. Number two, if an elder must have believing children, then it seems that no matter how many of his children believe, one unbelieving child would disqualify him. You follow that? Let's say he's got ten children. Number nine makes no profession of, of faith. Though the man has every qualification to be an elder, that one child is why he will not be appointed to be an elder. And those who believe those kind of, those, that particular category of, of uh, believing, unbelieving, faithful, etc., that, that's uh, where you have to go. You have to start thinking about those matters. They're not silly questions, though they might sound like it to you because of your system. Maybe your system isn't right. You've got to ask hard questions when these come up. Number three, if an elder must have believing children to be blameless, then it seems that God himself is not blameless. I will repeat that. If an elder must have believing children to be blameless, then it seems that God himself is not blameless. How can I say that? Well, we're going to look at just a few verses quickly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and verses 2, 7, and 2, 22. The first two chapters of the first book of God's word says, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. Those last four words have caused all the heartache, trouble, perversion, wars, rapes that have ever taken place in history. Those four words. And he did eat. Now think carefully with me. God pronounced his creation good. Genesis 2. He, crea- he said everything that he created was good. In other words, it was sinless. Number two. In a sinless creation, God put a sinless man and woman in a sinless culture. What was their culture? God himself. He would walk in the day, in in the cool of the day with them. They had unlimited access to God. It was pure. It was holy. You and I can't understand that. We're born in darkness. We are born in a sinful world, a rebellious world, with a heart that loves itself that worships itself, wants to do its own thing. We can't even imagine what Adam and Eve had. But don't, get, don't, don't go too far from the, the, the dock with me. Here we are. It was in a sinless culture, the Garden of Eden, a place of sinless union and communion with Almighty God. Number three, God was sinless. And he was a sinless, perfect father who perfectly provided all things for his sinless children. Nevertheless, even 
with his perfect fatherhood, his perfect provision, and their sinless nature, they rebelled against their father. Didn't they? In a perfect condition. Now I ask you this gently. I really do. Very gently. I don't want to. I don't want to probe anybody's wounds that may have one. Have you done that for your children? Have you perfectly fathered them? Perfectly given them a culture where there's no sin. Perfectly protected and provided for them in every conceivable way? Have you put them in a situation where no sin can invade? No, not one of you has. Not one of you has. Because, I mean, if you could even take them, go out to an island, nobody else around, have those children there, they brought something with them. As soon as they were born... Your wicked nature passed right on to them. So, God himself was a perfect father. There was nothing to complain about. It was like, oh, they get to do this. Why don't I get to do this? Wasn't any of that. Everything was perfect, pure, righteous. Good. And they rebelled against God. And they plunged us into the nightmare of our world. Do we have any perfect fathers here? No. Then you're not going to find a formula that's going to just give you those perfect children. In fact, the one you don't expect may become the worst rebel in your house. So, no woman since the time of the fall has ever birthed sinless children. With one exception, the Virgin Mary gave birth to the sinless God-man, Jesus Christ. If an elder must have believing children to be blameless, what shall we say of God? And I say that with reverence. What shall we say of God whose once sinless children both rebelled? Both of them. In the same vein, consider Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 I'm sorry, Isaiah 1, verse 2. The passage says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. Now, what does he say? I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So should we tell God he can't be God anymore? Can we tell him he's not able To preach to you or me. Because. Both of the children that he began the human family with. Sinned against him. Remember. Perfect context. Perfect father. Sinless world. Sinless people. 
God says, I've nursed and brought up children. They've rebelled against me. Some of the saddest words imaginable. For any of you parents to have a child that has gone to the world or more than one, you know that there's no heartache like that one. So, what is God saying there? Well, he's actually referencing Deuteronomy 4, 25, and 26. There, God solemnly warned Israel not to corrupt themselves with graven image. And God said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. In the scriptures, God demands two or three witnesses to affirm something. And so God says, the heavens have been witness to your life. The earth has been witness to your life. They know that I said, this is the way you must live and you've left it. Under the heavens and on the earth, you have broken my laws. You have, you have rebelled against me. God says, <clears throat> I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. He's warning them before they ever get in the land. He's telling them that they're going to go into captivity. Why? Why will they lose the land? Because he's plainly commanded them how to live. And they've said, um, maybe not. That's kind of hard. That's hard for us to do. I mean, we look at the other nations. Man, they're having all the fun. I mean, you go up into their temples, man, they've got prostitutes waiting for you. I mean, we have this bloody religion where you got to kill animals every day just to make God happy. This is too strict. Oh, young people, watch for that lie. This is too strict, says who? Well, I'm looking at oh, what's going on in American Christianity. I would look some other place like the Bible. I have witnesses, heaven and earth. I have reared and brought up children. That's exactly what those words mean in the Hebrew. They have openly, willfully, brazenly violated my commands and defied me, their father. So we have to ask again. If an elder is to be considered blameworthy because one or more of his children rebel, what are we to think of God, the perfect father? God's will is perfect. His instruction is perfect. His discipline is perfect. But our hearts are not. Is he blameworthy because his children sin? Anybody ready to tell God how sinful he is? He doesn't have any right to govern the universe. Well, Malachi 1.6. These are very quick. Let me run over these. A son honoreth his father, says God. And a servant, his master, if then I be a father, where's my honor? Young people, you ought to be listening to this as well. Honor 
your father. Honor him. If I be a father, where's my honor? And if I be a master, where's my fear? Where's my reverence? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. Who? O priests that defy my name. The religious leaders of that day. Even God's religion ran off the tracks. Why? Because of the weakness of failing sinful people. There needed to be a better covenant. Thank the Lord there's one promised. And we're in it right now. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts. Just what they're thinking is worthy of my crushing judgment. Because they have not hearkened unto my words, nor to my law, but rejected it. In this context, God's sons and daughters lived in continuous rebellion against him. Continuous. Finally, Jeremiah 4.22, For my people is foolish. For my people, his family, is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. Now that means stupid. In my house, you are not permitted to use the word stupid as an insult for your brother or your sister. <clears throat> but God says my children are stupid. Why? Because they don't listen to his word. Do you know the word of God well enough to know whether you are stupid before God? I tell you where you sit at this moment, if you are not saturating your mind and heart with the word of God, I guarantee you're sinning against him somewhere you never thought was rebellion. Because what you're doing is making up during the day what you think is the way to go with this or that. You will be governed by your emotions, not the word of God. Boy, that's a killer. So, number four, if an elder must have believing children to prove that he can lead people to Christ. Now, this is the one that's really painful. If an elder must have believing children to prove that he can lead people to Christ, then we must ask God some questions. Can God lead people to Christ? Are his children rebellious? Can he lead them? Could God save every human being on this planet? Does he have the power to do that? He does. He saved one thief and left the other to himself. Both of them had Christ in the middle. One very well-known preacher who claims to believe in the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace makes this remarkable statement. Now, this is from a fairly old 
commentary. So I'm, I'm hopeful uh, he has changed his position on some things over the years, and I'm hopeful this is one of them that he does. However, if not, this is what he says. If the elder candidate cannot bring his own children to salvation, listen to the words here, if he cannot bring his own children to salvation and to godly living, he will not have the confidence of the church in his ability to lead other unbelievers to salvation or to lead his congregation to godly living. That sounds an awful lot like the Holy Spirit's work. Not the work of weak and feeble flesh. A man must be under the Spirit's influence to preach and to pray that God will save and that he will guide into holiness. If men can convince other men and women to do this or to do that, <clears throat> he's got a dangerous power. Are you with me on that? I can tell you if you're around, if you're around a person with a really strong personality, they can begin to tell you things that's wrong for you to do or think or say that the Bible doesn't forbid. But you will submit to them. It happens all the time. Just because someone has a powerful personality does not mean that they can effect the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is a very important matter. Can you, after all this, can you sense how this is a really important problem? <clears throat> I hope so. So, this, uh, this brother goes on to say, based on a defective understanding of God's sovereign election, some interpreters argue that Paul could not possibly hold a man responsible for the failure of his children to be saved. It is God that opens the heart. It is the Holy Spirit that brings a man, a woman, a child unto God. Preachers, are just messengers. They have no power in themselves. If I had that power, every soul hearing me would be saved. And every one of you would be so hungry for sanctification, for holiness, that the one problem we'd have is people trying to outdo each other to love Christ more. This is an important matter. It's a very important matter. So, let me say all of this. I'm going to have to press just a little bit further. Hold on with me. May God grant you much grace. So let me say, I do not, and I am not persuaded by, I do not uh, go with the idea that the translation, believing children, is the best translation. You can disagree with me. That's perfectly fine. But I've given you some of them, some of the reasons that I think it's extremely problematic. So let's go to the second translation, and it will be shorter than the first one. Because it's simpler. <clears throat> and because very often the truth is simple. 
Not always the case. Sometimes it's very complex. But at this point, having faithful children is something I believe makes more sense in the context. In the context. The text of the authorized version says, if any be blameless, having faithful children. Uh, And there are modern translations as well as the older translations, the Tyndall translation, the uh, Miles Coverdale uh, translation, the Geneva Bible, all of them having faithful children. I don't think these men were ignorant of what the Greek was saying. They were looking at the context and saying, even though most of the time it's applied to believing, the context doesn't seem to require it here. And I will tell you why in just a few moments. But uh, even Wycliffe's uh, older translation says, having faithful sons, faithful children, and faithful children. So, <clears throat> number one, if, if an elder must have faithful children, as his wife continues to give birth, the congregation will focus on his training skills. You see that? An elder, if he, if he has faithful children, what will the congregation be looking for? How he brings those children up. Is he bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Is he disciplining them when they need it? They will be watching for his leadership skills in order to say, you know, I believe the Lord's dealing with this brother. Maybe he should be an elder in this congregation or in that congregation. Maybe we could send this brother over to that church over there that needs one. Number two, if an elder must have faithful children, then the congregation will focus on his people skills. There are a lot of men that are in an eldership situation. And I'm not talking about having to be, you know, really jolly fellow. But somebody who's not so distant and so cold and so stern looking that everybody and especially the women aren't sure, you know, if they should say hello or shake his hand. I've seen it. I'm not exaggerating. I knew a church that had an elder. He had more letters behind his name uh, than alphabet soup. And but he couldn't deal with the people. He was always, he'd finish, he'd go into his office, finish preaching, go into his office and just stay there. During the week, he'd just give himself to his studies, but he had virtually no contact with the people. And after a while, they began to think, okay, this guy is educated and he preaches big, high and lofty sermons, but I'm not sure he cares about any of the sheep here. He can't get close to him. So they're going to watch how he deals with his children. The congregation will focus on his, whether or not he really loves people. Thirdly, if an elder must have faithful children, the congregation will focus on his discipline. Does he discipline those children? If he won't discipline his children, he's not likely to discipline God's children, or at least not well. You are to watch 
that representative of Christ in his house so that you can figure out and project to some degree how he's going to deal with God's children. So let me offer you a cautious interpretation. Then we'll actually be close to done. Operative word, close. A cautious interpretation. There's an analogy in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. In other words, a parallel. If he can't guide his house, how will he guide God's house? If he cannot govern his children, how is he going to govern God's children? It's not just about preaching. It's living with people. It is shepherding people. And not just trying to make them like you. To do everything in your power for them to be like Christ. So. I will say this. After one of the most detailed and helpful discussions of this deeply challenging problem, one of the best commentators on the pastoral letters concludes, I love this quote, open quote, a decision is not easy, close quote. Now, if the men who understand the languages, if they give themselves to years of study, if they read what everybody else has got to say about it, and they go, you know, this is a tough one then we have a right, I think, to say it's a tough one. And we need to be very cautious about the way we handle those that disagree with us. So I will offer this attempt. There's a combined qualification of Paul's letter to Timothy and to Titus. If we just had Timothy, it would be pretty easy. It's that phrase that, that Paul used for Titus that makes us go, wait now, how did he mean that? So number one, number one, this qualification assumes the man is married with a family. It makes an assumption. It does not command him to have children. Are you with me? You know, if, if, if it would just say, if, if Paul would have just said, when it comes to a one-woman man, if he had just said and used the words, he can only be married once, there would be no controversy. It would be simple. Same thing here. Exactly the same kind of thing. If he had just said, every one of the children that God gives him must be converted, and they must be converted from the... <laughs> from the moment they're born or whatever. Well, we wouldn't be guessing, right? So we have to take our time and ask loads of questions. I haven't, I haven't scratched all of them with you this morning. I'm thankful you've made it this far. So number one, the qualification assumes that the man is married with a family. It does not command him to have children. I know churches that have said the guy's married, the guy has children, so only people that are married and have children can be elders. Now, I think that's the ideal, but I don't, I'm not convinced that that's the, the way a man must be. It does make clear that if he has them, 
they must submit to his rule. That's clear. He's got to be a good leader, and they need to submit to him. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And gravity there means uh, that, uh, that it's holiness. It is dignity. He's doing this with dignity. I mean, I've seen, I've seen guys go off on their children sometimes at church. That it's like embarrassing. I felt bad for the children who needed to be corrected. How's he going to deal with me when I need help, when I fail? For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Do you see the parallel? So watch his family. You've got to understand his family. Secondly, it makes clear that the children are living under his roof. <clears throat> when older children leave home, he should not be made accountable for the decisions his adult children make when they're out of the house. But when, he, when they're under the roof, they're under dad's authority. I'm not saying they have no responsibility to their father's authority when they leave. It's just that he's not going to be living in the house with them and the decisions they make. When older children leave home, he will not be able, the father will not be able to control or discipline their lives. He cannot be held, should not be held accountable for adult children's decisions. Thirdly, the context of this passage focuses on a man fulfilling his duties well. That's the idea. There is no guarantee that all his children will be converted. What brings the glory to God is that the man lovingly guides his children to Christ, but he can't open their hearts. I told my children from the time that they were young, I said, listen, daddy can make you go. And clean up your room. But I can't make you love Jesus. You need to see who he is. And learn to love him. I can't make you a Christian. That is the Holy Spirit's work. I can say no. I don't want you going over to that person's house. But I can't make you fall on your knees and cry out to Jesus to save you. I don't have that power. Fourthly, Paul's qualification seems plainly to focus on their governing, on governing his children's behavior. They are not to be characterized by wildness. The, the, what, what Timothy says here is very important. I'm sorry, what uh, the letter to Titus says here is important. It says, having faithful children, in other words, that they should be obedient to their father, not accused of riot or unruly. This is not just talking about rowdy kids. Children get rowdy once in a while. Right? <clears throat> it's not talking about being rowdy. The idea here says accused of riot that means debauchery they are wildly involved in sexual immorality 
That's what the word means. That should not be going on with his children in his house. Or he not taking care of his family. What's he going to let the church do? They're not to be known for a set attitude of rebellion. Now, you're going to have children, almost all of you probably have at least one, that's constantly got the question, yeah, but how about? Right? Well, I know you, I've been taught this all of my life, but now, since I am, I am entering in the age of massive intelligence at 15, I'm telling you, this doesn't seem right to me. Right? Well, you should study and pray. Ask gracious questions. Make wise appeals. But honor your father and your mother. Children are going to ask questions. Children, are going to, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have an inveterate rebellion against everything. Now the Lord might put one like that in your house. But I trust you understand. I have watched really good men after their children get to a certain age, work and work at bringing a a stubborn child into submission. It's not easy. But wow, some of them get really good at it. And they would be good for dealing with the Lord's stubborn children. The parallel is always there. The family, the church. How is he in his family? It's going to tell you about how he's going to be in the church. So, here are my last thoughts for today. In this view then, Paul is talking about a man, I I believe, I am not speaking with dogmatism. I'll try to use my best non-dogmatic voice. <clears throat> In this view, Paul is talking about a man's ability to rule his home, not the spiritual salvation of all that are under his rule. That's the way some people teach it. The, the person I quoted a while ago uh, with his unusual view of Uh, man and the father leading people to Christ. Uh, He says, if if God chooses you to be an elder, God's just going to save all your children. That means in my entire seven decades on this planet, I don't know that I've known more than one or two qualified elders. The minute one of them fails, that's it. You're not an elder anymore. Now, if he's not doing anything to stop the child, that's a different matter. If he shows himself inept, if he refuses like, well, it's my little baby boy. You know, well, that's, that's his problem. But when a man is doing all that he can to see his soul retrieved, Those things are in the hand of God. And it's very hard sometimes for us to submit to that. 
but it is. So let me, let me try to put this together as we close. This is a little bit. I hope that I will not go too quickly. There is a parallel, as I have pointed out several times, to his labors in Christ's church. He must and he will preach Christ, the God-man. He will preach Christ, the crucified. Christ, the resurrected. Christ, the ascended into glory. Christ, the intercessor. Christ returning for his people. He will preach this with all of his heart. He will and he must preach holiness. He will and he must preach holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. The word of God. There ought to be something burning in your heart for holiness. Amen. He will preach that. He must preach that. But not everyone in the congregation will walk in a holy life and may eventually prove themselves reprobate. But it's not without his constantly urging them, walk with Christ, love Christ, learn in fellowship, in communion with him, how to walk with him, how to fight the battle. He will discipline his children. And tragically, he may have to put older ones out of his house. But it is the same in the church of Jesus Christ. Some who will not walk faithfully with Christ must be put out of, God, out of Christ's congregation, must be put away from his communion. He must make sure that he properly models the word of God, teaches his children from the word of God, disciplines his children according to the word of God, and he must do the same for God's children. Somebody said to me once, you can't tell me what to do. I said, no, I can't, but Christ does. And it is all, my friends, it is all by faith in Christ Jesus. All in the power of the Holy Spirit. All in harmony with the Holy Scriptures. A congregation must consider an eldership candidate's fatherly oversight of his children. While they live under his roof, they must be faithful children. I believe that's what's being said there. They must walk faithfully under his guidance. His discipline must be just and biblical. And George Knight summarizes this, in my opinion, beautifully. Quote, What must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness. If the children are, notice, undisciplined rebellion. If the children are still at home and under his authority, Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected of every Christian father. Every Christian father and his children. However, 
Only if a man exercises such proper control over his children may he be an elder. Close quote. That we may hope, we may expect that most or all of his children will be converted. But we need to be careful about guarantees. Just cautious, wise. Not making promises where there are not promises. So my brethren, as a congregation, we must examine a candidate's family life. Uh, Does his wife look joyful or oppressed? Do his children look like happy, contented children? Or are they full of scowls and under a a storm cloud? All of these things matter. The care for a family can be challenging, stressful, heartbreaking, exhausting, and at times discouraging. And it is often much more so in the church of Jesus Christ. So brethren, this is an important matter. We would not require that every man's child be believing. But we would require that his family life gives evidence of how he will treat God's children here. May it be according to the word of God, and may it be to the everlasting glory of God the Father and the good of his people. Amen. Amen. Now, Father, we thank thee for thy goodness. I thank thee for the opportunity to work through these very difficult things. Father, a hundred sermons like this would be difficult. But occasionally, Lord, we must be challenged about what we think and why we think it. Help us not to be lazy. Help us not to let somebody else do all our thinking. And yet at the same time, help us to listen carefully to those especially whom we think have biblical wisdom. Help us, Father, to be balanced in these matters. Now, here are thy dear children We will be looking, oh God, we are looking, we have been looking for another elder. May God give us uh, a, a clear discernment about these matters. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, brethren, for your patience on that lengthy teaching. If you would please stand with me, we will have the benediction. Now, the God of peace. That brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of Jesus. Jesus.